in addition to the Clark's Nutcracker, uh, Wybart pine seeds are a good nutrition source for the grizzly bear, for the red squirrel, and for other animals in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And so the loss of whitebark pine and the decline of whitebark pine, as we're seeing, would be detrimental to all of these species. Hello there, and welcome back to the Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Oxford. If you've ever spent time in the high, wild reaches of Greater Yellowstone, up near the tree line, you may have come across a silvery, gnarled pine tree. If you've seen it, chances are you've encountered a whitebark pine. These remarkable trees can live upwards of a thousand years and are often the highest elevation pines you'll find in Greater Yellowstone. And not only that, but they are important to the overall health of the ecosystem in some surprising ways. On today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Danielle Ulrich, a plant physiologist and assistant professor in Montana State University's Department of Ecology. Dr. Ulrich runs a lab conducting research to better understand how high elevation pines respond to a variety of environmental stressors. Among her research subjects is the vitally important keystone species, the whitebark pine. These trees are a key food source for wildlife such as the Clark's Nutcracker and the iconic Yellowstone grizzly bear, but their impacts don't stop at wildlife. As you're about to learn, they also have a vital role to play in protecting the ecosystem and its inhabitants from drought and other impacts of climate change. But as important as they are, the future of the whitebark pine is uncertain. Pine beetles, blister rust, and overcrowding from other trees thanks to decades of fire suppression are among the many forces threatening the survival of this amazing species. In fact, you may have heard about the whitebark pine's recent designation as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act, which means the species receives federal protections to aid in its recovery. So join us for a chat with Dr. Ulrich, where we will learn a lot more about what makes the whitebark pine so special, go into detail about Dr. Ulrich's fascinating research, and learn what you can do to help conserve this amazing species and all the wildlife that depend on it. My name is Danielle Ulrich. I'm an assistant professor and plant physiologist at Montana State University in Bozeman. Um, the overarching goal of my research is to understand, mitigate, and predict plant responses to environmental stress, particularly climate change type stress, so drought and heat waves. And so you run a lab, correct? Yes. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about your lab and just dig into your research a little bit more? Yeah. So I guess I'll start with uh, why plants are important. So uh, I love plants. Um, and as we all know, plants and forests, they're important for providing food, clean air and water, um, healthy ecosystems, carbon storage, carbon sequestration, um, beautiful places to recreate, as we know, in Bozeman here. Um, I mean, they form the backbone of our, of our world. Um, yet with climate change, we know that we're losing plant species, plants, um, plants and forests are dying. We have increased forest mortality rates, um, which is leading to changes in where certain plant species are found, mm -hmm. where forests are found, um, and also their function. So like their ability to store carbon is also changing as these forests uh, shift. Um, and so because of these threats and these shifting plant functions, these increased uh, forest mortality, um, our lab seeks to understand um, and try to mitigate the effects of climate change on, on forest function. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So like, what are some of the kinds of questions that you're hoping to answer with your research? Yeah. So, um, I guess I like to start with, um, just as 
just as we as humans go to the doctor and get vital signs measured, like our, our blood pressure, our, I don't know, our heart rate, mm-hmm. whatever it else we, uh, vision, hearing. Um, as a plant physiologist, I measure various vital signs in plants, um, such as photosynthesis, so how plants are using carbon mm-hmm. and water and light to make their own food or their sugars through this process of photosynthesis. And then also their stress tolerances, so things like drought tolerance, heat tolerance, cold tolerance. And we're particularly interested in how their vital signs, their plant vital signs, are affected by climate change type stressors. And so the uh, overarching question or or goal of of my lab group is how do high elevation pine species, especially white bark pine, respond to environmental stress, particularly climate change like drought and heat waves? And so we want to know more specifically how will drought and heat waves, heat waves affect these pines' survival and their mortality? What are the physiological mechanisms that underpin whether an individual tree will survive or die? How do droughts and heat waves affect these pines' functions? So their functions like um, how, do they, how they do photosynthesis, how they're using water or taking up water, um, how are they storing their their carbon, or their carbohydrates, or those those products of photosynthesis. Okay, interesting. So, what does that research look like in practice? Like, what kinds of things are you up to when you're in the field versus when you're in the lab? Yeah. So, the most of our research right now occurs in controlled settings in the greenhouse. And so we mostly focus on smaller trees or saplings or seedlings. So all kind of um, individuals that we can grow in pots in the greenhouse under controlled conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll impose various environmental stress treatments. So a, a, we'll impose a, a drought treatment or a heat wave treatment or a cold treatment. And then we'll measure their different vital signs or their different functions um, before, during, and after those environmental stress treatments are imposed. And we say we're plant torturers. <laughs> I was going to make the joke. I'm glad you yeah. did it first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that we're good at killing plants um, because we, we, that's, that is what we do. Okay. Um, but, of course, there's more to it than that. Uh, we also want to know how these pines will respond to these stressors. So those vital signs or those functions I mentioned. And how these, these stressors will affect those vital signs like photosynthesis. How they use carbon and water and light and their, their stress tolerances, their drought tolerances. Um, and so this will help us understand what our forests will look, look like under future climates and how we might mitigate the effects of climate stress on them. Okay. Wow. So interesting. So this sounds like a pretty niche thing to do with your life. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your journey. Like, How did you find yourself researching plant physiological ecology in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Yeah. So I... I fell in love with the outdoors and outdoor recreation around the same time that I fell in love with plant physiology. And that this all occurred during my undergrad time, um, during my bachelor's at Bowdoin College in Maine. It's a small liberal arts school. I majored in biology and minored in chemistry. And um, uh, neither of my parents went to college. And so when I started at Bowdoin, I didn't know that uh, being a plant physiologist was a career option <laughs> or something that you could do. I actually uh, started at Bowdoin wanting to uh, go to medical school mm. and be a doctor for humans, <laughs> <laughs> but didn't know that being a plant doctor was an option at the time. Um, and so during my junior year, so I was more than halfway done with my degree, and during my junior year at Bowdoin, I took a plant physiology class 
uh, with Dr. Barry Logan um, and loved the class. It was just, there are six of us in the class, so maybe that also contributed to a great experience yeah. too. Um, but yeah, I fell in love with plant physiology, the course. Barry ended up being my uh, undergrad research advisor. I did uh, an honors project with him, some summer undergrad research with him. Um, and he really mentored and supported me throughout throughout my research, um, throughout, uh, I think, fostering my love for plant physiology, too. So I attribute a lot of uh, my my inspiration for plant physiology, you know, stemmed from uh, from that class, from his mentorship, um, from my time in Bowdoin. So, yeah. And then from there, you know, I learned from from my mentor, Barry, like uh, learning about how to apply to grad school, how to apply to fellowships and get funding. And and then uh, I did my master's and PhD at Oregon State University in plant physiology. And then, yeah, kind of the rest, the rest is history. Okay. So how did you find yourself in Montana? So after I uh, finished my PhD at Oregon State University um, and then did a postdoc, um, a postdoc research position in Los Alamos, New Mexico, northern New Mexico, just outside of Santa Fe at the Los Alamos National Lab, um, and was there for two and a half years. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I ended up getting a position at uh, in the ecology department at MSU, and so that's what that's what brought me and my family to. to right on. Um, so, when you're not working, how do you enjoy spending your time? Um, when I'm not working, I like being outside. I like recreating outside. Um, like I was saying, um, yeah, during my undergrad time is kind of when I fell in love with outdoor recreation. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we started hiking and backpacking, um, to now my kind of favorite outdoor recreation, um, activities or sports are like mountain biking. Um, I like to telemark ski, Mm -hmm. uh, trail running, um, with my dog and my partner, and uh, I mean, Bozeman's been a, a great home for us for that reason. So, um, is it hard when you're outside recreating? Are you paying attention to the plants constantly, or do you manage to like put blinders on and just bike? <laughs> <laughs> depends. Maybe it depends on the trail and depends sure, on the fair. activity. Um, but yeah, oh yeah. I mean, a lot of the activities I like to do def- take me to high, high elevation locations. Um, so, and there are five needle pines everywhere, especially around around Bozeman and. And yeah, I'm always taking pictures of them. So <laughs> Nice. <laughs> um, well, that's a perfect segue because, you know, for this conversation, we really are going to focus on the whitebark pine. Um, so for folks who aren't familiar with the species, could you describe the whitebark pine for us? Like, what do they look like? What's their range? You know, what kind of habitat can they be found in? Just give us like a crash course in this particular plant. Yeah, so uh, whitebark pine, it's a conifer. It's a conifer tree um, and a pine tree. Um, it's neat. It's uh, its needles are in bundles, which are called fascicles. Um, so in fascicles of five needles. So it's in this group of five needle pine species. It's also found at high elevations. So they kind of combine the names. It's a high elevation five needle pine. Um, it's also part of another group called the white pine species. So it's uh, high elevation five needle white pine. It's <laughs> quite the resume <laughs> species. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and so white bark pine is found. Um, in high elevation mountain ranges throughout western uh, the western U.S. and also up north to Canada. Whitebark pine are very slow growing trees. They're I think they're beautiful. They're they're majestic looking. Um, if you see them in you know in the Bridgers or um, south of Bozeman, I mean they're they're just beautiful. Um, and they produce these dark purple cones that kind of uh, make them easier to 
to identify. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to having those those bundles or those fascicles of five needles, you can go up to a tree and count how many needles are in there. And if there are five, it's either whitebark or limber pine if you're around in the Bozeman area. And then if they have these kind of dark purpley cones, then you know that it's whitebark and not limber pine. Okay. Okay. Limber pines are the ones that are kind of bendy too. Do white bark bend the same way? Yeah. Oftentimes they, um, so both species are very similar. Okay. Their morphology is very similar and really hard to tell, to distinguish the two species unless they have those cones. Okay. So it can be really tricky. Um, so why are white bark pine trees so essential to places like the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Yeah, uh, good question. So the whitebark pine is found at some of the highest elevations for any for any tree species, and they like to establish in, in bright, kind of sunny environments. Uh, these environments at high elevations are also windy, uh, very exposed, they can be cold. Um, there are, a whitebark pine likes to establish on, on high draining and very nutrient poor mm-hmm. soil. And so these conditions all together mean that few other tree species or plant species will establish there. So they're some of the only species that can establish in these really harsh uh, high elevation conditions. And because of that, they're considered pioneer species, meaning that they're usually the first to establish after a disturbance. Um, A disturbance could be something like wildfire. Okay. So they're really important to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. um, Because of this ability to establish in these locations where other plant species can't establish. We say that because of this because of this role, they're what we call foundation species, meaning that they uh, they create or build a foundation, I guess, for other species to inhabit. Oh. So they can uh, create habitat for other plant species or animal species, including providing shelter from the wind. Um, their roots will help stabilize the soil and help prevent soil erosion. White bark pine can also help to stabilize snowpack and help delay snowmelt by keeping the the snowpack shaded longer um, and prolonging stream flow longer into the summer, Mm -hmm. which is beneficial for downstream ecosystems that rely on that snowmelt. I would imagine that's becoming increasingly important with the way that climate change is affecting our region, where we're going to see big changes in precipitation and our snowpack as well. So that's really interesting to know. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I'll also add there, there, in addition to being to creating this foundation for other species, they're also often referred to as keystone species, meaning that even though they're kind of rel- they can be viewed as relatively rare in abundance, they have a large ecological impact on the ecosystem in which they're found. So, for example, they have a mutually beneficial relationship with the bird, the Clark's nutcracker where the nutcracker can use their strong beak to access the seeds in the, in the whitebark pine cones uh, and will eat those seeds and then will cache them, kind of bury them in the ground somewhere and cache them, hide them to access them later. And to whitebark pine's benefit, some of those seeds will germinate. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Clark's nutcracker uh, serves as a, a, a way for whitebark pine to disperse its seed, um, while the whitebark pine seed serves as a a high-calorie nutritional food source for the Clark's Nutcracker. In addition to the Clark's Nutcracker, uh, white bark pine seeds are a good nutrition source for the grizzly bear, for the red squirrel, and for other animals in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And so the loss of white bark pine and the decline of white bark pine, as we're seeing, would be detrimental to all of these species. So speaking of the decline of the species, let's talk a little bit about some of the threats to white bark pine. Often when we hear the name whitebark pine, the words immediately following it are things like 
blister rust and pine needles and climate change. So it seems like they're up against some pretty significant challenges. What can you tell us about these threats? Yes, whitebark pine faces a suite of threats. Uh, like you mentioned, white pine blister rust is the primary main threat to whitebark pine. It's leading to the widespread decline that we're seeing, especially in um, the GYE in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Uh, in addition to white pine blister rust, also mountain pine beetle is also a major um, biotic agent that threatens whitebark pine as well, leading to a lot of whitebark pine mortality. In addition to white pine blister rust and mountain pine beetle, an abiotic factor that is also threatening whitebark pine is climate change. So warmer, drier conditions can stress trees out and can make them more susceptible and less able to defend themselves against these biotic agents like white pine blister rust, like mountain pine beetle. Um, that they that if they weren't stressed due to drought or, or heat waves, um, would have normally been able to defend themselves against such such agents. So it's kind of this perfect storm of of being sh- stressed by by drought and, and warming temperatures, and then also these biotic agents, the the beetle, the the rust. Um, and then finally, I'll say the another another threat to whitebark pine is competition with other more shade tolerant conifer species. So subalpine fir, Engelmann spruce are just uh, more shade tolerant, whereas whitebark pine is very light loving. It's very high light tolerant. But these other, this Engelmann spruce and subalpine fir can actually shade out whitebark pine, making it harder for whitebark pine to establish. That has happened because subalpine fir and Engelmann spruce are uh, increasing in prevalence. Um, those subalpine fir and and Engelmann spruce forests are becoming more crowded, and that's because of a history of fire suppression uh, caused by humans, and that we're suppressing fire, and that fire would have kind of created space for whitebark pine to establish, but with a history of fire suppression, there's been an overcrowding um, and an increase in the growth of these shade-tolerant conifers that makes it hard for whitebark to establish or or, um, regenerate. So they're kind of getting it from all angles right now, Yeah, to say. So I I think I have an inkling of um, how you're going to answer this because you talked about some of the species that are dependent on the white bark pine for nutrients, but what would a place like the greater Yellowstone ecosystem look like without white bark pine? You know, what are some of the impacts of losing them? Yeah. Some initial things that come to mind are maybe earlier snowmelts, earlier summer drought, if we don't have whitebark pine protecting snowpack at those higher elevations, uh, an increase in subalpine fir and Engelmann spruce. We might see a migration or a decline in some of the animal species that depend on whitebark pine seeds as a nutritional source, maybe denser forest, maybe an increase in wildfire. To investigate this further, this question further, I have a grad student who's using field measurements and some uh, some climate modeling, uh, some water balance modeling of stream and snow hydrology to understand the effect of whitebark pine mortality on snowpack and on stream flow. So kind of a research project getting at this question of what would the GYE look like without whitebark pine? So we're trying to quantify with some modeling, with some field observations, what are those kind of downstream impacts of losing whitebark pine? Can we quantify them? And then maybe next time I come on the podcast, I can answer it more definitively. 
That is all so interesting because I think it's you know probably intuitive to imagine that there are animals that depend on a plant like the white bark pine. But then when you talk about snowpack, like that's a whole nother level of impact to the ecosystem that I think is is um, really important and certainly not like front of mind for for most folks. Just think about how a single tree species can actually you know impact our resilience to climate change and have implications for our water supply. That's pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about conservation. What are the conservation implications of your research? Um, You know, like how are you contributing to understanding how to better conserve this species? So a primary restoration strategy for white bark pine right now by the Forest Service is to outplant white pine blister rust-resistant white bark pine seedlings, and the Forest Service does this every year. And so my goal for our research is to improve how we match the seedlings' physiology and uh, their physiological profiles, how we match those seedlings with the most appropriate and optimal planting locations. So making sure that we're planting seedlings with certain, certain heat or drought tolerances in locations that will promote or ensure their successful establishment and survival. So using physiology to to appropriately match the seedlings with the location to outplant those seedlings. So what do you think the future looks like for this species? You know, is there anything that makes you particularly concerned or even particularly hopeful? I'll speak to both. Something, some things that are particularly concerning is white bark pine's really slow growth rate. Uh, so even with outplanting restoration efforts, their mortality outpaces their regeneration, or their um, their death rates outpace how fast they can mm. reestablish and and regenerate. So this, their slow growth rates, plus that we're seeing warming temperatures and droughts, um, may increase the prevalence of white pine blister rust, may increase the susceptibility of white bark pine to to these biotic agents, as I mentioned before. Um, So their slow growth rates plus climate change may be exacerbating their biotic agents and biotic stressors makes me particularly concerned. Yeah, fair enough. But particularly, uh, what makes me particularly hopeful is that there are lots of people interested in and invested in protecting and conserving and restoring white bark pine. It's incredible how many people and how many groups and organizations are on board with doing everything we can to protect and conserve high elevation pines, to conserve white bark pine especially, uh, to conserve high elevation ecosystems in general. It's inspiring to have so many people care and be aware and be educated about these issues and kind of doing doing what we all can and working together towards that towards that same goal. And so only only time will tell how much we can accomplish together. Yeah, for sure. Um newsworthy sort of recent thing that happened was of course that white bark pine were listed for additional protections under the Endangered Species Act. Um of course that's not a silver bullet. That is one tool in the toolbox as far as conservation is concerned, but you know, how do you feel about that designation for the species? I think white bark pine has been a candidate species to be listed officially under the Endangered Species Act for a while. So I think it's it's great to see 
it finally being considered a, a, an officially threatened species and getting that official designation when it's it's been on that candidate list for so for so long. We've seen these mortality rates for so long. So uh, so seeing uh, some validation um, at a I guess a federal level is is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything that regular folks can do to help protect and conserve the species? Yeah, I think there are lots of things that that regular folks can do to conserve the species. Uh, one being you can educate yourself about white bark pine's value, its ecological functions, and its threats. You could um, educate yourself so that you can then talk about white bark pine and con- white bark pine conservation with others, with your friends, with someone on the, ch- on the ski lift, someone in the grocery store. You know, if you like recreating in high elevation alpine ecosystems, most people will care about white bark pine and other high elevation species, um, and it can help get others on board to care as well if they don't if they don't already know. You know, when I was poking around on the Wikipedia page, cuff cuff for white bark pine <laughs> before chatting with you, I read this thing about how they and I'm gonna totally forget the German word for this, but how they are very um, like malleable, how they grow depending on the environment. So they can either grow like really tall and straight if they're in a protected place, or they're one of these species that because they live in this harsh environment can grow like low to the ground and all bendy. And I just thought that was really cool. Um, you know, is there anything like particularly special or different or interesting? interesting about the species that really resonates with you where it's like a fun fact that you're just like, ah, oh, this is such a cool species. I mean, every, I, I, overall, I just think the species is so cool because of where it lives. I think just it inhabits a place that few other species can live and that in itself is impressive, but yeah. And, and I think also what you're referring to is the Krumholtz you got it. Form- <laughs> formation where, yeah, especially under really windy, harsh conditions, the wiper pines, crown morphology will take on kind of this this bush-like morphology where it's low to the ground and yeah in that way it's again very impressive in that it can uh, adjust to these harsh conditions you know change its morphology so that it can survive where not all not all species can do that so you're right and that's really special yeah, it really seems like it is such a beacon of like resilience and um, adaptation. And it's sad to think about losing a species that can do that for us. So um, I know we've focused on whitebark pine today, um, but they aren't the only plant you study. So do you have any other favorite or particularly interesting species that you work with that you want to tell us a little bit about today? Yeah, uh, I think whitebark pine is still my favorite species, but limber pine comes in a close second. It's similarly impressive in where it, it also inhabits high elevations. It looks very similar to whitebark. It's found throughout the Bozeman area, and it's also, I think, just, just as beautiful and deserves just as much attention as whitebark white bark does. Perfect. You heard it here first. Limber pine are worth your attention. I like them because I like that they're bendy. I just think it's really fascinating when you can go up to a tree and like they have flexible branches. It's not what you expect. Um, and they're really beautiful. Uh, you may have touched on this earlier when you were talking about your undergrad mentor. Um, but one thing we really like to ask our guests is if they have a conservation hero. So are there any, you know, other people or is there any one person who you can really point to as being like your, your really main motivator in your conservation work? 
rather than a single person, I uh, my conservation hero is the Whitebark Pine Ecosystem Foundation. They're a non, they're a science-based nonprofit organization uh, that promotes the conservation and restoration of whitebark pine and other high elevation pine species. Um, and the work they do is phenomenal. Um, they have a, a, a whole group that organizes annual conferences, uh, webinars, uh, meetings. Um, they helped organize the press release on the Endangered Species Act for whitebark pine. They provide student funding for student research. They also do a program where they will certify ski areas that are whitebark pine friendly. And so, so the Whitebark White Pine Ecosystem Foundation is, is just great and a leader in conserving whitebark pine. And for that reason, they're my conservation hero, especially in relation to whitebark pine. That's a really good answer. We will put a link to their website in the show notes for this episode. Um, if listeners want to learn more about your research, uh, where can they go to find that? My research website, which I can give you, mm-hmm. and my email address, which I can also give you. Perfect. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today or anything else you'd like people to know either about your research or about whitebark pine? I guess I would add to my list of, of things that, that regular folks can do to help protect and conserve whitebark pine. In addition to educating ourselves and talking about it with others, uh, you, people can also write to their local politicians to maintain protection and fund conservation efforts. And I'll end with this poor pun where I'll go out on a limb and say that all white bark pine researchers, enthusiasts uh, would be happy to hear from you. Uh, so don't be afraid to reach out and ask, ask how you can help. So if you, if you know anyone who's in the white bark pine world, management or research, anything, reach out to them and, and I'm sure they can uh, direct you uh, for more ways for how you can get involved. That was beautiful. I feel like I should say nothing after that. The dad joke lover in me is intensely satisfied by this ending. Um, Thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was really lovely to talk to you and to learn more about this really charismatic species. And thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Daniel Ulrich for joining us to share more about this amazing species. We loved learning about this rugged pine tree and its importance to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Ulrich and her work, we've placed those links in the show notes. The Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast is produced by the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, a nonprofit organization dedicated to working with all people to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. If you like the podcast and want to support our work, please consider giving a gift to the Greater Yellowstone Coalition so we can continue sharing the stories and science of this remarkable region. You can also sign up to be a podcast insider, where you will get to suggest topics and submit questions for upcoming guests. You can find all those links in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.